Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to From Beneath the Hollywood Sign. If you love old movies, Hollywood history, or the golden age of filmmaking, you've come to the right place. This is the podcast that talks about amazing stories of Tinseltown from another era and fascinating conversations with writer-producer Steve Kubine and actress-writer Nan McNamara. So Steve, did Ava Gardner and Howard Hughes have a good relationship? Well, they did until he dislocated her jaw. What? Well, don't worry. She hit him back with an ashtray. From Beneath the Hollywood Sign is the gin joint for you. Welcome all to another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast. I'm Eric Rivenis. Thank you so much for joining me. Hope you are healthy and happy, or on the path at least to achieve that. Let's get to the interview. I am so pleased to have Robert Watson as my guest today. He is an award-winning author, professor of American history at Lynn University. He has published over 40 books on history and politics five works of fiction, and hundreds of scholarly journal articles. He also serves as the series editor for the long-running scholarly book anthology on the American Presidency, published by the State University of New York. He's been interviewed thousands of times by major media outlets and served as an on-camera expert for historical documentaries and TV series on networks like Discovery, National Geographic, History, and others. And he's here today to tell us about his book called Escape, the story of the Confederacy's infamous Libby prison and the Civil War's largest jailbreak. I always love a good story about a prison break, so I'm very excited to, to, to get into this. Great to have you on. So appreciate your time. Yeah, my pleasure, Eric, and thank you both for the invitation and for what you do. And I agree with you. There's nothing quite like a good prison escape uh, story. Uh, there are so many throughout history, but what makes it even all the better is when the prisoners are wrongly held and it's successful and they actually manage to break out. So the story we're going to talk about today is the largest prison break in American history. So, yeah, thank you. Absolutely. Yeah. So when did you first hear about this story, and what was the research and writing process like? Good. Uh, so I grew up uh, in Pennsylvania, not far from Gettysburg, so uh, part of it's genetic. <laughs> so I recall as a kid, some of my earliest fond memories were running around Gettysburg Battlefield, uh, when you could climb on cannons and do all that back then. Um, and uh, when I started my career as an historian, rather than be very narrow, you know, only writing about 
one president, one battle, one war, one year. I wanted to write a little bit about everything. So I made a big list of Revolutionary War, George Washington, Lincoln, Truman, World War II, Holocaust. Been able to put a check mark in all those boxes, but I always wanted to write a book about the Civil War. And uh, as your listeners probably well know, entire forests have been felled to fill the pages of books on the Civil War. So I was looking for something different. And I had heard about uh, Andersonville, which was arguably the most notorious prison in American history. This was the Confederate prison in Georgia, where approximately 13, 14,000 Union soldiers perished in just 14 months. It was a, a charnel house, a hellhole. So I knew about that and knew about you know, just the wretched conditions of many Confederate prisons. So um, I had heard about Libby uh, in Richmond, of course, which was the Confederate capital, and how this was even more high profile to the point where if you and I were sitting around having this conversation in 1863 or 1864, we would be well versed with Libby prison, both if we lived in the North or in the South. So I started to look around and there's hardly anything been, that has been written on that topic. So I figured I would do it. And fortunately, after a couple of months of work, I found diaries, uh, published memoirs, letters from several of the men that were in the prison uh, who escaped. I found um, Confederate war reports. Uh, Richmond had four newspapers at the time and they had a daily running coverage of the prison, how many people were admitted, how many died day by day by day. Uh, and the union, uh, the government had a, an inquiry both through the military and the Congress after the war because this prison was so heinous. So before I knew it, I had you know, 100, 200 really helpful primary sources. So it was only a matter of figuring out the best way to tell an exciting story. This wasn't a, a history that the Confederacy ever tried to keep secret, right? They, they actually used it for propaganda purposes. Absolutely. You're spot on. So yeah, uh, that, you know, everybody in the South and everybody in the North knew about this prison. People in the North knew about it because it was not a prison for enlisted folks. Uh, if you're a general or a colonel, a high ranking or a high profile union leader, this is where you went. So obviously, uh, because of the bias, um, while a lot of newspapers, politicians, generals, the public did not pay attention to the, the poor privates who were being you know, put in horrific prisons, there was regular coverage on the generals. Plus, as you correctly noted, uh, Eric, in the South, they used this for propaganda. So the Southern press uh, was pretty much just a mouthpiece. For Jefferson Davis. Um, Davis and the Confederate government did away with basic personal freedoms, any rights. It was run like a dictatorship. Um, and the irony was Southerners complained about federal or you know, northern or, or national government intrusion. Then they break off and they impose 100 times more control than the, uh, the Union government had done. So uh, they were told, Southern newspapers, especially those in Richmond, were told to to not try to cover this up, but to report it. In other words, it was kind of um, like a boogeyman. You know, people would say, oh, the parents tell the kids don't go out at dark after dark because there's something in the forest. I don't know. But they would say, um, if you pick up arms against us and if you get caught, you're going to Libby. And there's only one way out of Libby. And that's horizontal in a box. 
So the Confederacy actually propagandized this for a couple of reasons. One, to try to deter Union soldiers from fighting against them, to put the fear of God into them. Uh, number two, uh, to try to convince Southerners that they were winning the war. You know, the war was also a war of logistics to the point where the North had, as I always call it, the advantage of the three M's, more men, more money, more manufacturing. And Lincoln had wisely encouraged Operation Anaconda, which blockaded basically every Southern port, no export, no import, no trade. So by the midpoint of the Civil War, the South was running out of food, medicine, clothing, everything. They were in a starvation atmosphere. So at some point, you have to figure people would be wise to the fact that sons and brothers weren't coming home and they were losing this, this war. So the Confederacy went all in with propaganda. They even, Eric, gave tours of Libby to the point where some of the prisoners referred to Libby Prison in Richmond as the Libby Zoo. Confederate leaders would walk prominent people through or reporters through, and there they would see lying on the ground, half naked, you know, emaciated in their own urine and feces would be a Union colonel or general. So they would laugh and say, look, we're obviously winning the war. So it was propagandized in part to keep the South with this uh, disinformation campaign to think that they were actually winning the war. So why was the prison located where it was? Why was it picked to house Union officers specifically? Uh, maybe you could give us a little history on the place. Sure. So after the first battle of Bull Run in 1861 in the South, they called it Manassas. It was such a complete and quick Confederate victory that neither side was prepared for a long war. The Confederates in the, the newspapers were saying that the war will last somewhere between one and three months. Why? Because they had better generals, which they did. The North was saying this war will be over in 30 days because we have more men. And as soon as we inflict a major defeat in the North, they completely misread the Southern mindset. They thought they will realize they can't win, so the war will be over. Lincoln even had a 90-day draft figuring, you know, it'll be over soon. So after the first battle and in the subsequent battles, there were so many prisoners. The South didn't know what to do with them. The South was not in a position economically to start building prisons. Moreover, everybody thought the war would be ending soon, so why waste the time? So the South was looking for places to hold prisoners. What they ultimately did with enlisted men, like in Richmond, uh, a place called Bell, B-E-L-L-E, -L -L -E, Isle, they found a little island in the middle of the James River, and they just put the prisoners there. So they were piled up outside under the sun, under the rain, under the cold. Uh, others, they just put wood in a square or circle or rectangle, and the prisoners were inside like a stockade, like you would put cows or horses or something. But they didn't know what to do with the high-ranking prisoners. So what they did is there was a massive tobacco warehouse in Richmond. Today it's on 20th and Cary, C-A-R-Y, 20th and Cary Streets, Tobacco Row, which is a legendary part of Richmond. And there was a massive uh, tobacco warehouse, which contained three warehouses conjoined. So what they did was they emptied out the tobacco warehouse and used it for a prison for Union officers. Uh, one, it would be spartan and brutal. There was no room or place for facilities for feces and urine. There was no bunk beds, no nothing. 
In fact, the windows were open, so rain and heat and bugs and snow, sleet came through the windows. Hardwood floors, the men were just piled up on the floors, but because of its location in Richmond, they could better propagandize and better keep an eye on these Union prisoners. Uh, and Richmond was sort of the center place for the entire war effort. All the trains left from there, the weaponry was made there, the soldiers marched out of Richmond. So they used this um, huge tobacco warehouse, which was called Libby, named for uh, George and Luther Libby, two guys from Maine who opened up a chandlery, that is a, a warehouse for shippers. Uh, so they uh, con confiscated that, arrested one of the Libbies, threw the other one out, and turned it into a prison. Wow. Uh, so I'd love it if you could talk a bit about the men who ran Libby Prison at the time. They were definitely despised by the prisoners, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. So the South was running out of everything, uh, food, medicine, clothing. So if you're running out of f enough food to feed your army or to feed your own citizens, you're sure as heck not going to prioritize feeding the soldiers. So there were days when there was no food inside Libby. There were days, uh, weeks, months when there was no medicine whatsoever uh, inside the prison. I estimated that on a daily basis, the prisoners were getting maybe two-thirds of the caloric intake needed to stay alive. So if you didn't eat, you were going to die. And if you did eat, you were going to die slowly. Part of this uh, has to do with the fact that the South ran out of everything. Part of it has to do with the fact that Jefferson Davis and the Confederate government was so inept. Uh, I mean, incompetence to, uh, it, it would be laughable if it wasn't so tragic. But part of it was because of, as you said, the commandants, Thomas Turner and Dick Turner, uh, same name, but they weren't related. Uh, Dick Turner, Richard Turner, was the deputy commandant, and he was a big man with a beard who was physically very powerful uh, and was prone to just arbitrarily beating prisoners when they were being checked into the prison. So the men were afraid of him, but the one they were really afraid of was Thomas Turner. He was a small and frail and weak man, but just vicious. Uh, the men spent their time thinking about ways that what they would do to him if they could ever get him alone. Uh, Thomas Turner was lacking any sense of humanity or empathy. In fact, um, the Confederate government pretty much didn't know what to do with him. They didn't want him in uniform out in the field because he was so unruly. Uh, he was a monstrous human being. Um, he would arbitrarily just, uh, if a prisoner was lying on the ground, just you know, kick him in the head, just arbitrary acts of brutality. He, he had organized at one point what he called a lottery of death where maybe today he would say, okay, today it's colonels, any lieutenant colonel, and they would draw straws to see who would be killed. Uh, so he was just a brutal person and and um, ran the prison viciously when there was a rumor that there was going to be a prison break or that the union, were, they were going to send uh, a mounted unit in uh, to try to uh, liberate the prisoners. What Turner did was he ordered that slaves dig a pit around the prison, fill it with explosives. And he threatened the prisoners. He said, if I hear one word of this, I'll detonate the whole prison. In fact, I might just do it anyway. And he was so sick that the men believed him. So a form of psychological terror uh, while you're incarcerated at Libby. And this prison was considered escape proof, right? What was supposed to have made it escape proof? 
And don't you just love that, Eric, when they always announce that a prison's escape proof? <laughs> you know, talk about jinxing yourself. If I was a warden or commandant, I would tell everybody, shh, never say it's escape proof because as soon as you say it, it was escape proof for a couple of reasons. One, the men were upstairs. So uh, there was really no way out. They had deadbolts on the doors. Uh, two, they eventually Turner put bars on the windows upstairs. So uh, you couldn't, you know, before there were bars, you had to jump from the second or third floor, breaking a leg or ankle. Uh, there were bars on the windows. Thirdly, Confederate soldiers were marching around the perimeter of it on duty 24-7. And finally, it's in downtown Richmond, uh, which is the capital of the Confederacy. So Richmond is surrounded by defensive positions, uh, you know, soldiers, you know, so the entirety around Richmond. So if you do manage to get out of the prison, where do you go? Uh, the closest Union stronghold was Williamsburg uh, in eastern Virginia in the Tidewater region, about 60 miles, I guess it is, away. So if you do get out of the prison, how do you even make it through Richmond? Um, the, the home guard was out. Local citizens were told to be on the watch. Uh, in fact, some prisoners worried if they made it out. Local citizens were all armed, walking around itching to just shoot someone from the north. And if you do get past them, then how do you get past the ring of Confederate soldiers surrounding the city? If that, how do you make it all the way to Williamsburg? Remember, it's not like you're an athlete. You're going to run for two days to Williamsburg. These men were starved to death, beaten. Many of them lacked boots. Uh, they lacked, none of them had a jacket, a winter jacket. So they were freezing, weak, starving, which meant physically, even to walk a few miles, yet alone 60, it was going to be a Herculean undertaking. Was there a union equivalent to Libby or Andersonville? I know Elmira in New York, as an example, had a pretty bad reputation. So I guess the answer is yes and no. Yes, there were bad prisons. Elmira, which you correctly noted, was nicknamed Hellmira, and a lot of Confederates died there. But I would say no, there was not an equivalent for the following reason. In the North, prisoners died from disease. In the South, they died from a lack of food, a lack of medicine. They froze to death and beatings and murder. There was not the wholesale kind of retribution, vengeance, and hostility in 99% in of the cases coming out of Northern prisons, where in the South, good luck. Um, the Southerners took whatever anger and, and frustration they had, and they took it out on the prisoners. So in that respect, um, as, as horrific as Hellmire was, I don't. It, it was more because of disease rather than absolute aggression and, and neglect. So a number of years ago, I did an interview with Karen Abbott, who wrote a book about female spies during the Civil War. And one of those women she focused on was Elizabeth Van Lu, who plays a very important part in this story. Could you remind my listeners who she was? and her connection to Libby Prison. Absolutely. Uh, thank you for interviewing Abbott. I, I liked her work. Um, so, yeah, Elizabeth Van Lu, known as Crazy Bet. Um, she's, uh, I, I mean, I fell in love with Crazy Bet. She's a, an irresistibly interesting and brave character. So uh, she, her family was from Philadelphia in the north. Uh, and, of course, Philadelphia at the time was the hotbed of abolition and Quakerism. So her influences were abolition, equality, and so on. Their father moved to Richmond 
and was one of the wealthiest citizens in Richmond. She lived on a mansion up on a hill uh, overlooking the James River and looked straight down on uh, Libby Prison. Um, her father passed and left her with a lot, a lot of money. What she did was she used that to free her slaves and all buy other slaves and freed them. Many of them stayed and lived with her because they were afraid to go anywhere else. So she was a staunch abolitionist. What she did is she never married and she wore the nickname Crazy Bet as a badge of honor. Uh, in the genteel city of Richmond in, in the state of Virginia, uh, in the 1860s, no one would expect, suspect uh, an older woman and no one would suspect an older single woman who was crazy. So um, she was a spy for the uh, union. She uh, knew Grant. Grant knew her. She had regular communications with Benjamin Butler, a union general, and they taught her how to encrypt and decrypt and code and decode war messages. Uh, she used an invisible lemon juice type of writing. She had a codex machine and she would notify the union of where the everybody was around Richmond, where the defenses were and where they were not, because the union always wanted to take Richmond as the Confederacy always wanted to take Washington. She would also, because Richmond was the uh, the organizing place for the entire war effort, whenever a, an army would march out, she would contact Butler and say that, I don't know, the third uh, Virginia infantry just marched east on whatever day, and there were about 5,000 men. Um, the other thing she did was keep her eye on Libby. So she would go to the prison bringing bowls full of home-cooked uh, delicacies. Now, everybody's starving. She was so wealthy, she managed to get food. So what she would do is she would give the guards food, and they're more than happy to accept it, but under the condition that she can give some to the prisoners. So the guards didn't want to, but they would do it when the Commandant Turner wasn't watching. Then what she did is underneath one of her bowls, she had a secret compartment where she would leave notes for the prisoners. She would deliver eggs, and one of the eggs in the bottom of the basket had been hollowed out, and there was a note in there. She told the prisoners where to run, when to try to escape, and where she lived, I mean, putting her life in danger, so that if they escaped and were not physically able to get all the way to Williamsburg, the maps she gave them, they could come to her house and she would hide them in her attic. So Crazy Bet was remarkable, saved a lot of lives. I'm happy to say she lived through the war. Uh, when the war ended, they finally figured out she was the spy. The Confederacy spent a good part of the war looking for this spy in Richmond, never guessed it was her. Uh, when they found out it was her, an angry mob showed up uh, with torches ready to burn her house down. She goes out in the front porch and dresses down the mob, tells them that she's friends with Grant and he's on his way if anybody touches her or her house. Um, some uh, soldiers that she helped escape sent her money because after they, the Confederacy found out, the Southerners found out she was the spy, she lost everything she had. But soldiers, including uh, I think it was Paul Revere's grandson and a number of others, sent her uh, money and then Grant when he became president, made her a postmaster. So she had a job and income, and happily she lived to a ripe old age. And uh, what an inspiring and brave woman. Saved countless lives inside Libby and around the entire country through the intelligence she shared uh, out of the capital of the Confederacy. Right, yeah, yeah. A pretty amazing woman. And she had a spy in the prison as well, right? 
Yes, she did. She, there was a, a, a clerk uh, inside the prison, and he would do the roll call each day, usually twice a day. And when soldiers were escaping or trying to escape, he would fudge the numbers in the roll call, uh, pretending uh, his name was Erasmus Ross, pretending to look the other way kind of a thing. Uh, he also, there was a story that a couple prisoners wrote about, and then the man who escaped would later provide an account. One day, Ross, the clerk, told one of the soldiers, report to my office immediately. And he did it in an aggressive tone to the point where the other prisoners were begging Ross, please don't do this. They thought he was going to kill the guy because every once in a while, someone that was told to report to Ross's office was never seen or heard of again. Little did the prisoners know Ross helped the person escape. So this one prisoner goes to Ross's office and he walks in and Ross isn't there. And there's Confederate clothing lying there in the prisoner's size. Prisoner put it on and walked out the front gate as if he was a guard. So uh, Ross risked his life repeatedly uh, to do this. Uh, tragically, after the war ended, there was a, a fire in a large building in Richmond and he was trapped upstairs and burned to death. But um, yeah, Elizabeth Van Lu had... Um, a maid uh, servant inside Jefferson Davis's Confederate White House. She had high-placed uh, spies all over the city. We will be back after these brief messages. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-Off launches April 9th. The storm broke in Chattanooga one night in 1906 when a young woman was the victim of a violent crime. From that moment, the city knew no peace for four furious years. At the center of the storm was the notorious inmate, Dave Edwards, who was awaiting trial on murder charges. After a high-profile case threatened to go cold, the desperate county sheriff did the unthinkable by freeing Dave Edwards from jail and deputizing him to track down the fugitive. Revis Deeds, Four Years of Fury in Chattanooga, Tennessee, written by Kimberly Tilly, narrated by Samuel Burst. Is the most amazing true crime story you've never heard. Listen to Grievous Deeds, the audiobook, available on Audible, iTunes, and Amazon. And we have returned. So I'd love it if we could talk about Thomas Rose, 
who is the protagonist in your book, and who, along with help from others, plans this escape from Libby Prison, this escape from an allegedly escape-proof prison. Would you tell us about him, how he found himself a captive at Libby, and how he plotted to get out? Yes. So Rose is the protagonist, as you correctly noted. I, I really enjoyed Rose. He was such a compelling character. And he had an assistant named uh, Major Andrew Hamilton, who was also compelling. So Rose is first off a big bear of a man uh, with a big burly beard. Um, he grows up in Philadelphia, uh, again, Quaker abolitionist territory. Uh, he moves to around Pittsburgh and becomes a school principal. But as big and as powerful as Rose is, he's quiet, uh, almost shy. Uh, when the war starts, Rose enlists at, as the rank of a private, even though if you have a formal education, you are a principal or something, the North was desperate for officers, so they would have made you an, an officer. But he was just eager to get in the war. He was not a leader because he was so shy and quiet. He was not a leader who was vocal. Rather, he led by his actions. In no time at all, he rises all the way to the rank of colonel. Why? Because he leads by example. Uh, in, in, in one battle, the, um, the Union line was, was broken and the Confederates were punching a hole in the Union line. And of course, that style of warfare back then is all about disciplined lines. If the line breaks, you're done. Rose yells to his men that they have to plug the line, but he draws a sword, pulls a pistol, and he's the first one in the middle of the fighting to try to plug the line. Rose rides at the front of his unit. This is the kind of person he is. In fighting um, in the campaign through Tennessee and Georgia uh, at the Battle of Chickamauga, Rose is captured. And of course, he's captured because he's out front, you know, fighting as if he was a private and he's beaten and knocked out. Rose comes to and finds himself on a train headed to Richmond. Richmond had um, uh, not only the James River uh, and a number of roads, but five railways intersected Richmond. So they would bring some of the prisoners, uh, you know, from Georgian points to the south. They'd bring them to Richmond on the train. So the train's going and Rose, it's, it's night, it's rainy, it's bad conditions. Rose jumps off the train to try to escape. He lands wrong and breaks uh, an ankle and foot. But he runs on that broken ankle and foot and manages for hours to elude the Confederate guards who give chase. They finally capture him and beat him savagely again. This is his second beating. Finally, they arrive in Richmond and there would be this uh, horrific walk, uh, a gauntlet, if you will, in Richmond. From the train tracks to Libby, you went down the main street all the way to the waterfront, the Tobacco Row. And as they would march prisoners down there, local citizens would line up on either side of the road and sucker punch the prisoners, hit them with sticks, throw rocks and bricks at them, uh, throw garbage on them, uh, spit on them. Uh, so it was an intimidating, harrowing walk down the street to the point where if you read descriptions from these soldiers, they would be um, cowering together as they were walking down the street. Then they get to Libby and they look up and they're in the windows they see these skeletal faces with hollowed out eyes, gaunt, looking out at them, realizing that's their future. Well, as the men are walking down the road, you know, huddled together and ducking and being hit and things thrown on them, they think Rose has lost his mind because he's walking out front with perfect posture, just walking, you know, like a soldier. And 
people hit him, throw things on him. He doesn't even wipe his face off, doesn't even flinch. What he's doing is he's counting the number of steps from the railway to the prison, counting the number of steps on each street, memorizing the name of the streets, the intersections, looking for lamps where it will be lit at night. Uh, so Rose is plotting his escape before he even walks into Libby. When he goes into Libby, he's beaten again. This is his third beating. He's stripped, robbed, and thrown into one of the, uh, the big rooms uh, where you're sleeping on the open floor. Uh, Rose never abandoned the idea of escape. He literally is walking laps around his room to keep himself fit, uh, despite the broken foot and ankle, which never gets any treatment. Uh, and and he, is, he is undeterred. Uh, the guy is inspirational. In fact, other prisoners around him are inspired by his actions and his, his remarkable strength. Yeah. So as you said, from the very moment he's captured, he, he's trying to figure out how to escape. But a proper escape takes time. It takes thought. It takes opportunity. And right. it often requires trusted associates Absolutely. So how did it all come together? So Rose ends up being the brain behind the escape. He plans everything. He also ends up being the brawn. He's the one that digs the massive tunnel. He's also the inspiration. His uh, strength of character and his physical power just inspires men to stay with it. He ultimately digs four tunnels. You know, one collapses in a sewage and he nearly drowns. One runs into a an oak tree and there's no digging through or around that. But as soon as they have one obstacle, you know, as the other men are ready to give up, Rose turns around and starts digging the next tunnel. Uh, The idea comes in the winter of 1863-64. So December of 63, January of 64, things change inside Libby for the worse. First off, it's unseasonably cold. People are freezing to death. They find some soldiers that are bunking near the open window, literally frozen to death in the morning because it gets so cold. Remember, they don't have blankets, they don't have beds, they don't have anything. Some are half naked, if not naked. So one, it's freezing. So Rose's motto of, you know, escape or die, it, they are going to die if they don't escape. Two, the South runs out of food. So now they're going day, uh, you know, and then another day and another day without eating. There's no medicine. So even if you don't try to escape. Even if the weather doesn't get you, you're going to starve to death. And three, Turner, the warden, the commandant, becomes uh, particularly violent at this time, coming utterly unhinged. So Rose realizes he has to escape. So what he does is he goes to the window one night when it's storming, it's dark, it's lightning, it's pouring, and the roof had been leaking. So the Confederates built scaffolding and they were going to work on the roof. Well, the lightning and storm hit so quickly and so hard, all the guards ran inside, which means they weren't out there and the scaffolding was still out there. Rose goes to the window and he's so strong, he figures I might literally be able to break one of these iron bars. And if I can, I will jump out onto the scaffolding, climb down and escape. He gets to the window and he's pulling on the bars. He realizes not even he can break the bars when a lightning bolt strikes right near the prison and it lights up the window. And Rose gasps because there's a face literally next to his in the pitch black. The person gasps. It turns out it's Major Andrew Hamilton, 
from Kentucky. They both had the exact same idea at the exact same time. So they nod, they shake hands, and then they go back to, to bed. Uh, the next night, Rose goes back to the window. He's still no getting out. So he goes downstairs and the bolt on the door to go into the dungeon, the basement, which the prisoners called rat hell because it was filled with thousands of rats. If you would walk across the floor, it was impossible not to step on a rat. Well, Rose had peeked out the window, which was dangerous because the guards had instructions from Turner to shoot in the head anybody peeking out the window. But Rose peeks out the window and he sees that there's a sewage pipe leading into the canal that feeds the James River behind the prison. And there's rats pouring in and out of it. So Rose looks at the angle and realizes uh, that it goes into the basement of the prison. So if he can get into the sewer... He can go through the sewer, which is disgusting, but he'll go through the sewer into the canal, into the James River, and then escape. So Rose goes to the basement. There's a dead bolt on the door, but he bashes the door open. He's so powerful. And he's in the pitch black in the dungeon, walking along the floor, stepping on rats, feeling with his hands in the pitch black on the wall, trying to find where the, the sewer entry entrance might be. As he's walking along the wall, he bumps into a person and they both shriek. It's Hamilton again. Two for two. Lightning <laughs> struck twice. So they decide they're going to work together. So Rose becomes the brawn and the brains inspiration. Hamilton's kind of a MacGyver type of figure. Hamilton can build anything, fix anything. He's super creative. He's a young, handsome, dashing uh, cavalry officer. At any rate, he was from Kentucky. He probably would have been pro-Confederacy. But Confederate marauders attack his town, so he vows revenge, so he joins the Union uh, as a mounted officer. At any rate, Hamilton is the creative guy. When they're digging their tunnel, one problem is when Rose gets so deep underground, so far through this narrow little tunnel, he passes out because there's no air. So Hamilton steals a big, wide-brimmed straw hat, but then sews you know, wood into the flaps and floppy part of the hat to make it rigid so he can stand at the entrance and fan air. Another problem is when you dig, I mean, Rose has to dig through solid rock and dirt. Then you have to back out of the tunnel and dispose of the rock and dirt and then go back in, back out. So it's not efficient. Hamilton steals a, a spittoon and a knapsack. He then steals a clothing line and he rigs a pulley type of system around Rose's ankle. So when Rose fills the spittoon or knapsack, he yanks Hamilton, pulls it out, empties it, and then Rose pulls it back in. So you never have to get out of the tunnel. Those are two of the many inventions that Hamilton comes up with. He's also something of a criminal in that he steals a jackknife. So now they have a small knife to help dig. And um, there used to be a tool shed in the dungeon and Hamilton goes into one of the compartments and finds the broken end of a shovel. So now they have a couple rudimentary implements that Hamilton uses to improvise and Rose can dig. So um, those are the two who proceed to do this. The, the other problem they have is how do you get down into the dungeon every night? So the night after Rose broke the door open, he goes over to it and the Confederates put a triple deadbolt on it. So there's no doing that. Hamilton realizes that in the kitchen, which is almost directly above the part of the dungeon where the sewer is, in the kitchen they have these 
huge black cauldrons where they would boil up the garbage that served for food for the prisoners. Behind the cauldrons was an old fireplace that had not been used in years. So Hamilton uses the jackknife and digs the mortar out around each brick. And what they have to do every night is disassemble the fireplace brick by brick, then climb through, dig a tunnel, and then fall down into the uh, dungeon. Then each morning, they would eventually make a rope ladder that they would tie on and put down in the basement. They broke one of the, the uh, benches off and used that to scoot down like a sliding board. But uh, each morning then before roll call, these two men had to climb back out of the dungeon, replace every brick and the mortar to make it look like the fireplace was operational. And then Rose had to push uh, like an NFL lineman, these giant heavy cauldrons back in front of the fireplace. And then they had to sneak upstairs. Uh, they, the, the, the problem is, of course, if they're digging every night, that means you're not sleeping. So they're dying slowly. And the other concern is one of the prisoners will see them sneaking back in the morning or sneaking down at night. They have to wait until the, after the last roll call and men were asleep and get up there before the first morning roll call and the bugle or drums or taps or something, you know, calls the men to uh, alert. So that's how they proceeded to dig their tunnel. At one point, right, I think it was Rose who broke through, surfaced and then realized he hadn't made it past the fence. Correct. Yeah. So they, there's a fence, a boundary, and um, it's 60-some you know, feet away, but digging a, a, a zigzagging um, tunnel deep down underground and around boulders and around trees, it, they, they dug much more than that. Rose peeks out the window, but the problem is you can't stare out the window or you get shot in the head by a guard. So he has to peek and do rough calculations and then figure out the trajectory, the angle to get there. He thought he had it. So he goes out, thought he had the uh, trajectory and distance right. Uh, they were off by just a few feet. Rose gets out there and he pops his head up. And, you know, as the dirt falls down into his eyes and he feels the cold rush of, of, of air come down because it's February now uh, of 1864. And he can see the dark sky above him. There's a boot. A Confederate soldier, a, one of the guards, is right next to him. Rose darn near almost dug up into the <laughs> Confederate soldier. So Rose can't move. The soldier hears something at the ground and sees the ground, the dirt fall into a hole. And the soldier jabs his bayonet into the hole. Rose can't move or cry out. Fortunately, it does not go into his eye, but it cuts him along his cheek. But Rose can't move. He can't scream out. And then the guard starts poking around. He calls another guard over and the other guard says, you know, damn rats, because they all knew that there were just thousands of rats that poured in and out of the sewer, the canal and the dungeon, the basement of the prison. So Rose was lucky. What he does is he puts a uh, one of his shoes atop the little hole, patches up the hole, and then crawls back. The next day, he peeks out and sees his shoe, so now he knows how many feet and at what angle he has to dig. So then they finish the digging. Yeah, wow. So ultimately, over 100 men make their way through the tunnel and find freedom. Yep, absolutely. It's February 9th. Um, they wanted to break out earlier because they were starving to death and freezing to death. 
Uh, but Rose realized if they are that weak, it's no time to run all the way to Williamsburg. So he made them rest. He made them try to save some non-perishables. He made them try to walk laps around the uh, their uh, holding area just to strengthen their legs and to try to borrow from other prisoners socks or better boots or anything they would need, an extra shirt to make it. So when Rose felt everybody was ready, based on intelligence he had, they had received from Crazy Bet, Elizabeth Van Lu, and based on Rose's sketching of stealing a piece of paper, a pencil, Rose sketched out a map of how they would get out of the city and how they would make it to the road to take them to Williamsburg, where the Union Army was. Once he felt everything was good, then he announced that the road to freedom is open. And um, ultimately, Rose and Hamilton were digging, 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 but they realized the rate at which they were digging, it wasn't enough. They were going to die before they got out because of starvation and cold. So they had to take a few more men into their confidence and they organized crews to work around the clock, still with Rose as the leader and Rose digging most of it and, and selecting the crews. So the men that helped are the first ones to escape. The men voted that Rose and Hamilton would be the first out. Rose told them to go in twos so you would have a partner to care for you. And Rose and Hamilton, the first two that popped out on the other side of the fence, ultimately 109 men uh, follow uh, and it constitutes then the largest prison break uh, in American history. There's a point where one of these men named Abel Strait gets stuck in the tunnel. Yeah, Abel Strait was, uh, he was notorious. He was infamous in the South. Strait was a raider. Uh, you know, they would uh, go deep into Southern territory and and hit a supply line or or hit a warehouse or blow up a train track. So he was he, he was, fought that kind of a war. He gets captured. So the South really beat him. In fact, he's often in solitary confinement in a cell in the dungeon uh, where, where Rose and Hamilton are digging. So they kind of have to bring straight into their confidence because he sees what they're doing. But they steal food and water to bring downstairs for him. And straight is also a hero. He's smart. Uh, he's a big guy. He's, he's a really compelling character. And Strait helps them come up with ideas on escaping. When it's his time to escape, like Winnie the Pooh, he gets stuck <laughs> in the tunnel. Uh, they have to strip him and they're pulling from the front and pushing his butt. Uh, finally, when he get him through, it delays everyone. But the men stay together and they, they honor Colonel Abel Strait. When he, when he finally gets through, he's so weak that he can't make it to Williamsburg that they have to take him to Crazy Bet's house. So Elizabeth Van Lou had given instructions as where a former slave, people thought she was still a slave, Crazy Bet freed her and she lived with her freely. She was at an intersection so by a lantern. So Straight and, and another man went there and this uh, former slave uh, heroically helped take them to Crazy Bet's house. She hid them up in the attic and then fed, nursed him back to health. Once the massive manhunt for all the escapees had died down days and days later, then she got a wagon, put straight in the wagon, covered it with produce and whatever. And uh, one of the former slaves who worked for her then drove the wagon to Williamsburg and straight escaped that way. Back once more after this brief break. Hi. 
I'm Matt Albers, host of the Pirate History Podcast. The men and women of the golden age of piracy are some of the most infamous and often misunderstood characters in all of human history. You know their names. Captain Morgan, Anne Bonny, Henry Avery, Mary Reed, Captain Kidd, Blackbeard. But do you know their stories, their real stories? Every week over on the Pirate History Podcast, we explore the real lives of these pirates. We examine what made these pirates sail the high seas in search of plunder and adventure and revenge. The real stories are a lot more complex and a lot more interesting than the stories most of us have been told. If you'd like to hear the stories of the real men and women who went on the account and sailed under the black flag, join us on the Pirate History Podcast. Everybody shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. When Johann Rahl received the letter on Christmas Day, 1776, he put it away to read later. Maybe he thought it was a season's greeting and wanted to save it for the fireside. But what it actually was, was a warning, delivered to the Hessian colonel, letting him know that General George Washington was crossing the Delaware and would soon attack his forces. The next day, when Rawl lost the Battle of Trenton and died from two Colonial Boxing Day musket balls, the letter was found, unopened in his vest pocket. As someone with 15,000 unread emails in his inbox, I feel like there's a lesson there. Oh well, this is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Every episode, we look at the bad ideas, mistakes, and accidents that misshaped our world. Find us at constantpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. And we have returned for the final time. Uh, So not all 109 prisoners reach safety. Some are recaptured, some are killed, but some make it to the north. Yeah, uh, two die, uh, 48 are recaptured, but that left 59 to make it. Um, The first person to make it to Williamsburg was Hamilton. Again, Hamilton was young, creative, and and a a little more fit than most of the other uh, ones. He and Rose were the first ones out. However, when they're following Rose's map, to get out of Richmond, they turn a corner and there's a bunch of Confederate soldiers. Rose has Hamilton run and Rose kind of, Rose realizes he's cooked. So, uh, and plus he's got a broken ankle foot. So Rose walks up to them acting like he's, you know, a Confederate soldier just back in the city on brief leave. 
Uh, and he's half naked and gaunt by this time anyway and disheveled looking. So they believe him. He talks his way out of it. So unfortunately, Rose and Hamilton are separated. Hamilton's the first to Williamsburg, so he warns everyone. So the Union, uh, they're keeping fires going all night long. They have sentries out looking for the escapees. Some men on horseback are out looking for them, but the Confederates are as well. This was the largest manhunt probably in American history until the manhunt for John Wilkes Booth uh, just a year later. But uh, Rose, it takes him about a week to make it to Williamsburg. He has to literally hide in a log. He's, he hasn't eaten. He's freezing to death. He's starving to death. He almost gets caught a couple times. At one point, he's in a pond holding his breath as they pass by. He gets to a field that separates the Union encampment in Williamsburg from the woods, the forest. And Rose knows that the Union, are they're watching that broad, wide field. But the Confederates probably are as well. They're both keeping an eye on one another. So Rose, even though he's starving and freezing, he waits and waits and waits, spends hours watching, satisfied that there's no Confederate unit around. He then, with everything he has left on a, on a bum ankle and foot, he races across the field low. He gets about halfway across, and five Confederate guards, spies, stand up. They were hidden in the deep, thick grass and weeds uh, looking for the Union. Rose gets into a fight with them. Uh, he manages to take a gun from one of them and punch one of them out. But one another one hits him over the head. This is, you know, Rose keeps getting hit over the head and beaten. It's, it, it's what a savage existence. He's captured just, you know, he can smell the food cooking. He can hear the voices. He can see the campfires. And he's taken back to Libby and put in solitary confinement. So Rose is one of those who's recaptured. Hamilton makes it. Abel Strait made it. So it was, uh, it was harrowing. The Confederates um, sent mounted units out. They had dogs running out after them, men on horseback with torches. Local citizens were so angry, they went fanning out in every direction with a gun and a torch. I mean, it was a massive manhunt. Uh, but fortunately, most of the soldiers made it to Williamsburg. How long did it take for prison officials to realize that the escape happened? And what did they do afterwards to try and prevent it from happening again? Yeah, good question. So one, uh, Rose had planned this so well that he had one of the prisoners who was not in a physical condition to escape, but they trusted. Uh, that man would go down and after the initial 15 left, he would seal everything up, giving them a certain amount of time, a few hours, head start. Then that man was instructed, then he could tell the rest of the people to escape. Um, as the man was plugging things up, he was caught uh, by other prisoners who realized there was an escape. So it was not an orderly escape with a few hours between the first group and the second group. It was a chaos as men literally ran over one another, fell down the steps, uh, trying to make it to the dungeon, trying to find, you know, the way through the tunnel. Uh, it, was, it was just chaos. Uh, and most of those men were the ones that were recaught. But it took until the next day before the Confederates realized that sunup. They did the roll call. And what the uh, Union prisoners did was if they did a vocal roll call, you know, like by Eric, uh, Robert, you know, calling off names, uh, you would yell present when they called my name or I would yell present for you. Uh, sure. And then Ross, the clerk, would always fudge the numbers. Or what men would do is if they counted heads, 
someone that had a hat would put it on their arm and hold their put the hat on their arm and hold their fingers up in the air, looking like there were two heads, one with the hat and one without. So they kept screwing up the roll call. So finally, at late morning, they realized and then they found the tunnel. That's when the, the manhunt started. There were a number of procedures in place. The guards were dressed down severely by Turner. Anybody not on top of their game would be immediately killed by the commandant. The cannons uh, in the area that pointed out in anticipation of a Union attack on Richmond were turned in to face the prison. Uh, you know, um, grape shot uh, inside the cannon, so like a giant shotgun or blunderbust. And then... Uh, the Turner, the commandant, ordered that explosives, that dynamite, be put underneath the prison. And any sense that anything was happening, he would blow the whole prison. So a number of changes were made, and the men stuck in it were then stuck. There was no getting out after that. Wow. So would you talk about Judson Kilpatrick and his foray into Richmond? Yeah, so Judson Kilpatrick and uh, a young, dashing European named Dahlgren, D-A-H-L. Um, the plan was the Union wanted to take Richmond, but the Confederates put up an effective and stingy defense year after year. So rather than march an army of 50,000 or 100,000, uh, the plan was to get mounted units under General Kilpatrick. They called it Kill Calvary. Uh, for his last name, Kilpatrick, to kill Calvary. And they were going to go, half of them would come in from one direction, the other half under Dahlgren from the other direction. They would race. They only took rations for three days. They would race pulling horses, race into Richmond, kill the guards, surprise attack, first thing in the morning or late at night, and then liberate the prisoners, put them on horses and escape before the Confederates knew what happened. If the opportunity presented itself, they would try to capture or kill Jefferson Davis, potentially, or other targets. But it was pretty much a snatch and grab. And unfortunately, Kilpatrick was not the right man for the job. Um, Kilpatrick was full of bravado and braggadocious. Um, he even wagered other people that he would uh, bet that he's going to be effective. He and Dahlgren took their time getting there. They couldn't resist attacking other Confederate installations rather than rush in and rush out. Thus... The element of surprise was gone. Uh, as they get close to Richmond, the Confederates are waiting for them. Moreover, they learned the hard way that the Confederates had eyes and ears everywhere. There were a lot of Southern sympathizers or slavery sympathizers. So the Confederate army was waiting for them and Dahlgren and Kilpatrick's cavalry were annihilated. Dahlgren is killed. He had a, 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 an artificial leg uh, that he lost uh, his leg during the fighting. The Confederates dragged his corpse behind a horse all the way through town, like uh, the, uh, the Colosseum, like a gladiatorial uh, event in ancient Rome, with people laughing and yelling. Then they hung him up upside. They flayed his body and uh, left him there. So it was a disaster. Uh, after the failed Kilpatrick raid, uh, Turner killed more and beat more prisoners inside. So the raid just made things worse. Uh, for the prisoners inside. Uh, Dahlgren's body was hung up and his leg was hung up beside him in a public place, sort of like a public stockade in uh, you know, Elizabethan England or something for people to go out and look at. Uh, the next day, everybody went out and Dahlgren's body was gone. It turned out Elizabeth Van Lu snuck down, cut his body down, hid the body, 
and after the war notified the family so they could get the body back. So, um, yeah, quite a story with the disastrous uh, Kill Calvary, the Kilpatrick raid. Wow, yeah. So how was the prison finally liberated? And what happens to the Turners? So in early April, the Confederacy was done. Uh, Grant had uh, brought 100,000 plus soldiers, some of the biggest guns in the Union Army, and he surrounded Petersburg, which is just outside of Richmond, a, a key transportation hub. Grant basically surrounds the entire capital region and lays siege to it. So it's not if, but when Richmond will fall. And Grant finally is effective in early April of 1865. Unfortunately, Lee, Jefferson Davis, and others fled at the last minute. Uh, Grant hoped to meet them to parlay for favorable terms. Unconditional, no question, but they would provide food and medicine. But Lee and Davis and the Confederates burned their city down. If we can't have it, no one will have it, which ironically, as they were allowed back into Richmond, people had no homes to return to and nothing to return to eat or anything. So um, Richmond fell in early April. Uh, Lincoln personally visits Richmond with his young son, Thomas. He called him Tad, Taddy. And they walk through the streets looking for Davis and others, and there's no one to be found. Lincoln visits uh, Davis's Confederate White House, and he sits in Davis's desk and chair and can't help making a joke about Davis is a lot shorter than he is. <laughs> uh, you know, sort of it takes a real man to fill up a chair or some silly thing. And Lincoln talks up everybody and then he wants to visit Libby. So Lincoln actually goes to Libby, which is now empty. The guards fled, including the Turners. Uh, Lincoln goes to Libby and the crowd gathers and starts yelling, we will tear it down. But Lincoln yells, no, leave it. Leave it as a reminder. We need to know the evils and horrors that men will do to one another in times of war. So both Turners escaped. The deputy commandant, the big guy, Richard Turner, Dick Turner, he's captured. And poetically, guess where he's put in prison? Back in Libby. <laughs> so they, they put him in solitary back in Libby. Thomas Turner manages to escape. And like many Confederates, they vowed they would never live in the United States because it's authoritarian, even though the Confederacy was 100 times more authoritarian. So he flees to Texas with uh, Jubal Early, one of uh, Lee's favorite generals. He called him my bad old man. He was an honorary cuss, sort of a Yosemite Sam character. So uh, they escaped to Texas. Then they escaped to Mexico. Uh, so Turner goes to Mexico. He doesn't like Mexico. They es escaped to England. He doesn't like England. He goes to Canada. He doesn't like Canada. He doesn't like anything. So ultimately, after Lincoln's killed, our 17th president, Andrew Johnson, pardons uh, the Confederates. So uh, Turner returns to the South. He doesn't tell anybody. He assumes a fake identity. And best as we can tell, he uh, passes in Tennessee and lives a long, quiet, obscure life after that. So he never saw justice. What about Thomas Rose and Andrew Hamilton? So Rose makes it out. Uh, eventually he lives in solitary and he's stuck in Libby until the very end. But at the very end of the war, when all's over, there's a prisoner exchange and the South didn't want to do it, but the North had Robert E. Lee's son. They had generals, they had colonels. So the South was forced to do it and Rose is a high value target. So he was exchanged. Rose 
recuperates and re-enlists. Uh, he spends the rest of his life in uniform. He's a great hero. He becomes a general. Uh, he's an American heroic image, uh, a heroic uh, icon, rather. And uh, But he's quiet. He's humble. The men that escaped and those that didn't but later lived through it begged Rose to write an account of this. Rose refused to do it. They begged and begged. Finally, Rose reluctantly agrees. But he writes only a couple pages and he minimizes everything. He takes no credit, almost as if we dug it and we were lucky and we got out. But the good news is that prompted the other men to write their accounts. Uh, Rose lives a long life. Hamilton goes back to Kentucky. Tragically, after the war, Hamilton one night meets another veteran. So they're sitting out front of a saloon, having a drink on a Saturday evening, reminiscing about the war. And some young hooligans walk by and they see Hamilton and they shoot and kill him. So it's tragic for Hamilton. But Rose happily lives a long life. And many of the men that escaped, uh, despite their physical condition, uh, like Abel Strait, went on to uh, serve with distinction back in the military and, and live reasonably long lives. So you said that Lincoln declared that he wanted the prison to remain standing as a constant reminder of the horrors of, of war. But the prison doesn't ultimately remain intact. Unfortunately, it doesn't. They don't take Lincoln's advice. Um, it falls into disrepair. It's a fertilizer facility at one point. But eventually, uh, uh, two decades or so after the war, a group of investors from Chicago buy it and they get a train and they disassemble the prison brick by brick, uh, the door, they get the key to it, they get the cannons, they get everything. They put it on a train and they bring it to Chicago. The train wrecks and thousands of bricks go pouring everywhere, but they were able to put most of them back on another train and take it to Chicago where they opened up the Libby Prison Civil War Museum. It became a tourist attraction uh, for a couple of years in the late 1800s as people from everywhere went to see the reminder of this haunted, ghastly prison. And Civil War veterans would all go there. So if you were lucky and you took your family to visit the Libby Civil War prison and museum, uh, you'll probably find a veteran sitting there telling stories or one of the guys that made it out of Libby getting up and giving a speech. So it was there, but they ran on hard times financially and went bankrupt. So they literally told the patrons, take everything you want. So people took bricks, they took door frames, window frames, they took iron bars, they took cannons, they took... Uh, Libby was just uh, souvenir collections. People just put something in their pocket and left. So where is Libby prison today? Maybe a brick on a building in Iowa, maybe uh, a brick in a barn in Kansas. And, you know, we don't know. There's a couple of objects in the Virginia Historical Society in Richmond. There's a few artifacts, objects in the American Civil War Museum in uh, Richmond. And in a handful of places around the country, there'll be a brick or a key or a, but most of it just was taken by souvenir hunters and it disappeared tragically. So with that, with no physical reminder, Libby was gone and forgotten and was something of a mystery for, you know, well over a century. If you go to the site of Libby today, as I have many times, right along the canal in the James River on Tobacco Row, which is now fun microbreweries and restaurants. It's a, you know, a real happening part of Richmond. If you go down there now, they build a flood wall 
And right where Libby was, there's an opening in the flood wall for people that are jogging, walking, or taking their dogs for a walk. And there's a little marker, like a little larger than a license plate that's that's there. I've been there several times, and I always ask all the walkers and joggers, hey, has anybody ever heard of Libby? No. Anybody ever looked at this sign? No. Anybody? I've never met anybody. What's poetic is on the grounds where Libby once stood is now the Virginia Holocaust Museum. Wow. And I had gone in and told everybody there, do you know that you built this Holocaust Museum dedicating, you know, a, a facility dedicated on hallowed, sacred, consecrated ground for something else that's hallowed? And nobody knew. So poetically, above some of the bones and where the horror occurred is now a Holocaust Museum about tolerance and, and, and the, the, you know, war brings out the best in men. But it also brings out the worst. So I think poetically, it's, it's, it's quite remarkable that by chance, a Holocaust museum was built where this prison used to stand. Oh, interesting. Well, gosh, I so appreciate you coming on to, to share this thrilling and, of, of course, very sad story. But I do want to ask you this. Are there any other books that you've written that my listeners might enjoy? Sure. One maybe with a true crime, tragedy, disaster theme. Yeah, I tend to write books. I, I have 40, I don't know, six, seven or something like that. I tend to write them in trilogies uh, for whatever the reason. I pick three. Uh, so this book's called Escape. Uh, it's called the subtitles, The Story of the Confederacy's Infamous Libby Prison. But I wrote two others about basically prison breaks. One is called The Ghost Ship of Brooklyn. And that's about a, a, the Revolutionary War, and the British decided to hulk, H-U-L-K, an old cursed ghost ship of theirs uh, named the HMS Jersey. By hawking, that means it took off the mast, it took off the rudder, it took off the wheelhouse. In other words, leaving the ship to look like a coffin. And they filled it with American prisoners, and thousands died during the Revolutionary War. In fact, here's your statistic for the day, Eric. Twice as many Americans died on that one ship, which was in the uh, Wallabout Bay in, in Brooklyn, uh, than died in combat during the entirety of the Revolutionary War. So wow. that's called The Ghost Ship of Brooklyn. And then I, the third one I wrote was called The Nazi Titanic. And in the final days of World War II in April and May of 1945, the Nazis had a ship that was built to look like the Titanic. It was an ocean liner. Uh, it was called the Cap Arcona, A-R-C-O-N-A. And they turned it into a floating POW and concentration camp. And at the end of the war, the Nazis filled it with thousands of POWs and thousands of Holocaust survivors and oh, made it man. a floating camp. And in both those cases, thousands of people died gruesomely. But there were shocking and remarkable escapes. So, uh, yeah, so this uh, actually, my the book we just talked about was the third in that trilogy. Oh, that, that sounds great. Yeah. And if anyone wants to see a list of your books, find out more, you have a website. Yeah, real easy, robertwatson.net. And I think I put like the 10 most recent books up there, robertwatson.net. They're all available on Amazon. And I, I admire what you do, Eric, anybody keeping history, keeping crime, keeping unsolved mysteries, keeping that alive and people talking about it. That's uh, that's stuff I love. Uh, and I'd be more than happy to uh, uh, to appear on your podcast again. That would be great. Yeah, I'll definitely take you up on that. 
Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you, and have a good one, everyone. Again, I have been speaking to Robert Watson. He is the author of Escape, the story of the Confederacy's infamous Libby prison and the Civil War's largest jailbreak. This has been another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast, broadcasting to every dark and cobwebbed corner of the world. I'm Eric Rivenis, and have a safe tomorrow. Have you ever wondered how inbred the Habsburgs really were? What women in the past used for birth control? Or what Queen Victoria's nine children got up to? On the History Tea Time podcast, I profile remarkable queens and LGBTQ plus royals, explore royal family trees, and delve into women's medical history and other fascinating topics. Join me every Tuesday for History Tea Time, wherever fine podcasts are enjoyed. Let Mysteries at Midnight be your destination for detective whodunits and captivating mystery stories. You'll hear classic stories like Sherlock Holmes, Agatha Christie's Poirot, and short tales from H.G. Wells, Charles Dickens, Edgar Allan Poe, and others. I'm Christopher, and I read these classic stories in the soothing style of a bedtime story, so you can listen to them in bed when you drift off to sleep. Search for Mysteries at Midnight on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favourite podcast app, and follow and subscribe so you don't miss out on new episodes.